Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. This is Pastor Clayton. I'm sitting here with Pastor Ben as we go through the chronological reading plan. And we're excited to dive into another week's readings. We received quite a few questions, uh, listener questions, which is great. Keep them coming. Yes. I think if y'all have questions and as the podcast continues, I think we still want to be able to offer some things to be watching for in next week's readings. But like if it turns out that everybody is just engaged and asking questions and everything else and that most of what we do winds up being answering questions, I'm totally at peace with that. I think that's great. Not because Clayton and I know everything. We do not. uh, Even between the two of us, we don't know everything. (laughs) (laughs) But we have the luxury of being able to do a lot of study and thinking, uh, you know, about these matters. And, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, many folks in our church have read the Bible much longer than us. And so we're certainly not the only two that can offer insight. But we are the only two with a podcast. So here we are. We received the question, why are there two creation stories back to back? So Genesis chapter 1 is obviously the the story of creation in six days uh, by Yahweh. And then Genesis 2 gives us a a look at Adam and Eve and their time in the garden. And it also just seems like it's an expansion, perhaps, on the sixth day of creation. You know, I think that there's a couple different ways to think about this. On the one hand, I think that it is... A reflection of the fact that the creation of the world is a big deal and no single story can probably capture all of the meaning inherent in that or, or what the creator would want us to know. And I think you see that in the, the change in emphasis between Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is poetic. Uh, it's obviously much more universal in its scope. And Genesis 2 is much more local. You know, it really focuses on the creation of the Garden of Eden itself rather than the whole world focuses on kind of an individual human, the Adam, whereas in Genesis 1, it's just he creates male and female in his image. So I think there's different emphasis there. I think that the, uh, like so much of what we've talked about, you know, it's not a puzzle because God wants to trick us. It might be puzzling because there's an invitation there to sit and think about the differences between those two stories. Not that the Bible is not contradicting itself, but just trying to teach us something through the stories themselves, but then also how they mix and match with each other. You know, and so the tension between thinking of us as individuals, but also thinking of us as belonging to the human race, you know, thinking of us in our local context, but then also belonging to a national and and global community, you know, Mm -hmm. and just shifting back and forth between those two things. And what it means to be a human person, you know, created in the image of in, in the image of God. I think also a lot of people think that Genesis two is is a sequel to Genesis one. That the events are happening afterwards. Um, we can talk more about that if there's a lot of curiosity. Um, but the idea would be that human. Some people think that humanity as a whole is created in the end of Genesis one, and then Genesis two is zoning in on two very specific humans. Um, and so it's a account that comes afterwards. There's some question about the, like the chronology because chapter two, verse five seems to say, you know, there's no plants, but then he creates humans, uh, before plants. And I, I think that what pastor Ben said about this being a, about taming the garden 
or zoning in on on a specific area is what's important there. It's the idea that that the 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 stuff has been made, but it's not been given purpose and structure in the way that it would be in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we do have another question uh, about Genesis, and this one I actually I'm really excited to hear Pastor Ben's thoughts on because I know this is a story that we've heard quite a bit. So we were asked about the story with Jacob and the striped sheep. Mm-hmm. And Pastor Ben, I know that this is a story that sort of captured your imagination, and I would love to hear your insights about it. So Genesis chapter 30, Jacob mm-hmm. is with Laban, and Laban and he have cut a deal that Jacob can keep all of the striped and spotted sheep and goats in the flocks, of which I think the presumption is there aren't many. And generally speaking, those sorts of animals are viewed as inferior to kind of the uh, monochrome uh, pelted animals of the flock. Yes. We see that reflected later in Leviticus. You know, you're not supposed to sacrifice spotted or striped uh, animals. They have to be, you know, pure white or whatever. So I think Laban is thinking, you know, okay, great. I've made this deal. Jacob will never get out from underneath me because... You know, he can't. You can't build a fortune on inferior animals. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the setting. And then, so Jacob does something. <laughs> I almost and spat out coffee there. Yes. I think that's all we can say for sure is that Jacob does something that involves striped wood, <laughs> uh-huh. the feeding troughs. Mm. and the animals mating so and i you know and, and and i will also say and we mentioned this i think last week but we did a whole sermon series on the book of genesis and i preached a sermon on this passage called getting laban's goat it's in the podcast feed go look for it it's it should be on our youtube channel somewhere uh mm-hmm. and so if you're like hmm i'd like to hear more about this go find that because i'm not going to give the whole sermon over again but the reason why I say all we can say for sure is that Jacob did something involving these things is because the Hebrew here is very tortured. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Some scholars and rabbis think that nobody has ever known what Jacob did. <laughs> like, it's just kind of this vague, mm-hmm. you know, sleight of hand, which, again, is like, I don't know if it's super important to understand what exactly you know, he did. My pet theory is Ooh. that there's a Hebrew linguist, and I think I talked about this a little bit in the sermon, who kind of goes through and, and proposes a translation where Jacob basically built models, like he built decoy sheep for the male sheep to Laban's male sheep to, to mate with so that they would spend themselves fruitlessly. And so Laban's flocks decreased while Jacob's flocks increased. I see. So Jacob would let Laban's goats mate with his spotted and speckled ewes, but then he would, you know, use these decoys. And anyway, so uh, I kind of like that. I think Jacob building fake sheep to trick Laban's sheep feels like a Jacob feels thing. Feels like something that Laban would have done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are, yeah, there's there's a range of opinion here. Google it. You'll find all kinds of, <laughs> of thoughts and theories, but that's the one that I like. I think it is most in keeping with the kind of the, the tenor of the, the deceptions and the other stories. Yes. But like I said, I think the thing, the baseline is Jacob did something tricky with striped wood, the feeding troughs and, and the animals mating, whatever it is in particular. 
And he did it on purpose and right. accomplished his purpose. Right. And he accomplished his purpose. Now, I believe in the next chapter, right before he leaves Laban, Yahweh comes to him in a dream, you know, and says that I have blessed you, you know, with all of these things. Yes. It's revealed that all of his scheming, all of his plotting, I mean, Lord only, literally, the Lord only knows how long it took him to make these decoys, you know, <laughs> all this effort. And it was still Yahweh blessing, deciding to bless him, you know, is kind yes. of how I read the story. So it's not that God endorsed what Jacob did. It's that God was blessing him, you know, and I think we can, we can, that Jacob's probably learning that he didn't have to go through all of that because he has God's blessing and God was going right. to take care of him. Um, and so I think, yeah, within the context of Genesis, I think that's what this, this story is doing. What a weird story. What an odd thing to be included. I mean... It is and it isn't. It is and it isn't, right? Because it fits exactly into the deception and fakery and trickery that we've seen from Jacob over and over again. And is, in fact, the last time he does it. Mm -hmm. Or really, I guess he sneaks out while Laban is out of town on business. Yes. So that's the last. But that's connected to this because Yahweh tells him in the dream it's time to get out of Dodge. Yes. You know, so then they leave. And then he sends all the possessions ahead of him in the the caravan. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it is the penultimate, like it is the 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 picture of the apotheosis, if you will, of his trickery is pulling this off against Laban. Well, and this is also the only time that his trickery is what? How should I put this? Again, not endorsed by Yahweh, but that it works, and Yahweh says uh-huh. this happened because I did it. Yes, not because <laughs> you tricked people. I think that because so, part of why I think I latched onto this story is because I read it when I, the first time I read through the whole Bible was like, what in the world is happening? Sure. Tried to find commentary on it. And a lot it's of the really study difficult. Bibles just skip right over it. <laughs> and it's distressing how many cowards, stories. Cowards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, not that like I know all the things and I'm the super Bible person. No, but that look at all you miss. Mm hmm. This whole section of the scripture is just lost. This whole section of Jacob's development is lost Mm -hmm. if you just let this weird part throw you off. Don't let the weird parts throw you off. No, the weird parts often have a lot to teach us that we would miss if we did not spend the uncomfortable amount of time it takes to to sit in them and be formed by them. Um, And they break the narrative that when you include them... And spend the time it takes to try and make sense of them. A lot of the times they bring out the themes of scripture much right. more richly. Well, and it's an odd, it would be an odd way to read or watch anything else if the moment something you didn't understand happened, you stopped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it would be. Yeah. And so why why read the Bible like that? Or why assume that what you already think this story is about is what it's about. And so if something doesn't fit, well, then that part of the Bible should just be ignored. Like, what arrogance Mm -hmm. is that? Well, we do have one more tough question. So in Genesis 34, we have this very awful story about Dina, um, the daughter of Jacob, uh, who was born to Leah. Um, She is taken and raped by a man named Shechem. And then what happens in the story is Jacob's brothers end up, well, Shechem wants to marry her and uh, Dinah's, Dina's brothers tell them tell him that they all have to be circumcised in order for that to happen. So these adult men circumcise themselves and then while they're in pain from that, Jacob's sons come in and 
murder them. And one of the questions we got asked was just, why is this story in there? And this is a this is a good example of what it's it's a little bit of a weird story. It's not weird in the same way the last one we talked about was, but it's uncomfortable for us, and we are left tempted to make some bad decisions here with the Bible. One of the bad decisions we could make here is to say that, well, this was just another time and they were all okay with this. That this wasn't uh, this wasn't as uncomfortable a subject for them as it is for us. And I think that if that's true, that's a condemnation on, on the people at the time. Um, it is clearly supposed to make us uncomfortable. The lack of any clear resolution at the end of it, I think is an example of how uncomfortable it's supposed to make us. We get these stories throughout Genesis that are um, that show the mistreatment of women. And we are not supposed to read them and think, oh, well, it's fine because that was another time. I think we're left to wrestle. And it's a tough question here. Who's right? Um, Jacob for wanting to make peace despite what's happened to his daughter or her brothers who want vengeance and go out and murder people because of what happened to, to Dina? Or is there no right after such a wrong was committed? Um, I don't think we're given a, a neat answer to that question. And one of the things we're left to reflect on is the difficult situation that women find themselves in, the helplessness that they find themselves in the midst of, and the difficulty of living righteously in the midst of such a world. I think part of my hesitancy is just we want to tread carefully here because the story of Dina continues to happen. Yes. I mean, there may very well be not just women, but people listening to this who have experienced mm. rape or sexual assault. Yeah. And so we're not trying to make light of that, you know, or Absolutely talk not. flippantly about it. It's awful and it's evil. But I think that's precisely why mm-hmm. Genesis 34 is in the Bible. Yes. That's precisely why, is because it's a reflection, certainly of something that happened. But again, as we've talked about several times, this isn't purely history. There's plenty they left out. Yes. So anything that's in is in for a reason. They had a specific purpose for including this story. Yes. And I think that every time women are mistreated in this way in the Bible, it is it is bad. Yes. <laughs> like, it's never, you know, the hero... Well, the heroes do this because the heroes are sinners, but it's never framed heroically. Right. David and Bathsheba, yeah. Amnon and Tamar, Judah and Tamar, although Tamar's kind of a hero. I mean, she's righteous at least, but but I would say that really is why. It's because it's a reflection of the world we actually live in. And I think, you know, so I was, uh, I read this when we read through Genesis and then the Wednesday small group, we talked a little bit about this story. And, you know, I think one of the values that some of these Old Testament stories give us is what's called like story experience. Mm-hmm. So like it may be something that you personally have not experienced, but by thinking about a story, yeah. you can kind of virtually go through it and be like, how would I react? And so I am a brother to a sister, you know, and so just thinking through like, what if something ever happened to my sister? How would I respond? How do I think my dad would respond? Like what, you know, what happens when that happens? Of course, you don't want to think about it. Right. It's not pleasant. Yeah. But I think that the story grants an opportunity to realize that what Jacob did was wrong. And what Simeon and Levi did was wrong. Yes. And they represent two poles 
of reaction because Jacob did nothing and Simeon and Levi did too much. As much as you can do to a perpetrator, which is to murder them and their families Mm -hmm. and everyone in their city. Like, that's about as far as you can take it without dropping a nuclear weapon on the city of Shechem. Yes, and they used an expectation of Yahweh to do it, which I think is a special evil. Uh, They brought... Oh, the circumcision, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so there are no heroes, except for maybe Dina, but she kind of disappears halfway through, and we never hear from her again. Which is... Also a painful reality with some It of is these a stories. painful reality, but but I think how often are women, even if they're believed, even if justice is done, but like when something like this happens in somebody's life, they are silenced and sidelined because we don't we just don't want to confront the fact that this happened to them. Which is terrible. Yes. You know other people's pain makes us uncomfortable. I think that something this made me think about is that one of the assumptions we use in reading the Bible is that the Bible is always supposed to be uplifting. That is not no. a good assumption. That is wrong. <laughs> yes. A lot of it is, you sure. know, certainly. But a lot of it is actually very challenging and very confrontational. And what I mean by that is it forces us, if we pay attention, because again, I mean, we've preached, you preached on Dina, but Mm -hmm. I've never heard a sermon besides yours about Genesis 34. We want to ignore these passages because we want to ignore these realities right now. Yes. Like there's sexual assault and abuse of children and human trafficking happening in Washington right now. Yeah. And we'd rather pretend that just wasn't happening and the Bible won't let us. Yes, that is absolutely... We really, the Lord won't let us, you know, through the Bible, but... These stories are there, and I think they operated in the same way in the ancient world. You cannot look away from these injustices and, you know, and these things of like, why would Moses, why would the Israelites have kept telling the story of what happened to Dina for hundreds of years until Moses and company wrote it down on a scroll? You know, it's not because they were proud of what happened. It's not because they all loved rape. You know, it's because that, well, but just like, again, it's not a positive but because I think there is truth in the in the fact that this is happening and God's people should be trying to live in their own communities and then in whatever community they're in to stop these things, to make it more and more impossible for these sorts of things to happen. On one hand, the disappearance of Dina is, I think, intended to um, put the light on to Jacob and his sons as far as the reactions to the event um, to, to I think, confront us with both of them being inadequate and or sinful. Um, but when we imagine a young woman in the ancient world reading this story and the, the difficulty that this would produce for her as well, because what would justice have looked like? Like what? This happened to her. She had no say in it. Um, In fact, she doesn't speak at all. No, she does not. In Genesis 34. Which is another uncomfortable thing. But but I just imagine um, the the struggle with wrestling. What does justice look like? If we were to rewrite this story today, how would we bring justice out of this? I think without the direct intervention of Yahweh, um, the, the fixing of this situation is impossible once the sin has been committed. Once Shechem has done what Shechem did. Um, 
and and what we're left to wrestle with then is what is the the right way forward and it's not given to us cleanly or neatly um, because the reality of it is that 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 isn't how things work um, today thankfully we live in a time where there is a justice system um, that is intended to to punish people like um, Shechem but that is not a perfect situation and the the awfulness of the act remains that's just something we have to wrestle with and sit with yeah and then chapter 35 happens and it abruptly shifts and that's also a little uncomfortable i think that the biblical authors do not want us to get comfortable yep we have a couple of questions here as well sure okay so the first one comes from job chapter 7 verses 20 and 21 and the question is this. So um, Job says, if I have sinned, what have I done to you who sees everything we do? You who sees everything we do. Job is speaking to Yahweh. Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. So I think one of the questions we have to wrestle with here is, um, does is Job a sinless man in the in the story of Job? Is he considering himself to have been without utterly without sin, or is that not the case? Because it does seem here like he's admitting to sin. Does that does that thwart our typical understanding of the book of Job? You know, Yahweh himself says that Job is blameless in chapter one, and so I think that does God think that Job doesn't sin? No. I think that what that means is that Job properly deals with his sinfulness. Yes. You know, we, it, many times it references Job's piety and his sacrifices and his yes. sacrifices for his children and his whatever else. And so, no, it's not that Job is some special person who never sins and, oh, he just admitted that he actually is. It's like, no, I mean, Job knows that he does wrong, but he deals with it righteously. Yes. Or, or rather, I should say, he deals with it faithfully, and so then is credited as righteous. I mean, that again, that yeah. specific language isn't used in Job, but um, so no, I, I think that that's that Job's point here is, you know, especially when he asks, "Will you not let my crime pass away in twenty one, mm-hmm. and let my sin pass away, or pardon my crime and let my sin pass away?" I think the context of that question is because I've done the sacrifices, yes. like I've done. You know, my part to yeah. to uh, apologize and to repent and to kind of expunge this from my record. Yes. So what, yes. you know, you can't punish me for something. That you've told me I will be forgiven for. you've told me that for. I'll be forgiven for. Yeah. So in the ancient world, they believed that the, um, the followers and worshipers of Yahweh believed that sacrifices were what was needed in order to bring forgiveness to the sinner. Um, sacrifices offered to Yahweh. And the, now this is, Job is written before the law is given and somehow still, and we see this at other places in the, the Pentateuch, it's understood that sacrifices are needed for the sake of forgiveness. And Job expects um, that, that forgiveness will be given when the sacrifice is offered. That is his understanding of how sin and forgiveness work in the relation of Yahweh. And from what we know of the Old Testament, that is true, right. that the guilt is taken away and the sin is atoned for by the offering or by the, the giving of the sacrifice. And so Job's frustration here is, I've been very diligent. I've done all the things that a righteous man is supposed to do. I think Job Job is a, a good man. I think that he is a, a Yahweh follower of sincere heart. 
um, but has, for the sins that he knows he's committed, offered the sacrifices. And he feels like the injustice is, though he's done what Yahweh has told him to do in order to have those forgiven, they have not been forgiven. And all of this that's happening feels like punishment from Yahweh or specific targeting by Yahweh. Um, and that feels unfair. He'll talk specifically about why that's so unfair in the passages we're going to talk about for next week um, that Pastor Ben will summarize for us soon. But that's that's what Job's frustration here is. So as you read this, if you can, avoid seeing Job as a self-proclaimed sinless man as though he were... Um, as though he were Adam before the fall or Jesus in some sharing a, a characteristic like that. What he is, is a dutiful, faithful follower of Yahweh who worships sincerely, strives to do good and gives sacrifices to cover the sins uh, that he's committed. But Pastor Ben, do you have a summary of our next week's chapters for us? I tried. It's a weird... I was wondering how you were going to do it, because this is I a tried. weird thing to summarize. <laughs> well, in the reading plan, and it's not the reading plan's fault. They didn't know we were going to be doing a podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the line, you know, of like, well, start in chapter 12, and then uh-huh. cut in the middle of Elihu's speech, and it's just like, all right. So I did my best, everybody. I... So next week, we're reading Job uh, chapters 12 through 34. And in 12 to 31, Job and his friends continue their discourse that has started in chapter 3. And uh, the way it works is that each friend kind of says his piece, and then Job responds, and then the next friend says something, and Job responds, and they they go back and forth. And it, it seems pretty evident that Job and his companions are on two very different wavelengths. Job pleads for comfort. He wants mercy. He wants relief from God. Whereas his companions are trying to explain why these catastrophes have occurred and win their argument against Job. And that becomes especially clearer the further you read yes. uh, into chapters in the 20s, basically, is when they start actually accusing Job of wrongdoing. And, and it becomes kind of nakedly about getting him to admit that he's in the wrong. And just as a free pastoral side note, this is not <laughs> part of the summary, really. Whenever you have, mm. whenever you have the impulse to explain or especially to blame someone who is actively suffering for their own hardship, well, I told you so, if only you'd done this differently, whatever, then you need to shut your mouth or if you can't manage that, leave the room. And yes. I mean every time. It is never appropriate when someone is actively grieving and suffering to try and explain it to them or blame them somehow, even if they did yes, bring it on even themselves. even if it's true, it's still not the time. Don't do it. If you take no other lesson from Job, be assured that God hates bad comfort. He despises it. <laughs> well, because it's ultimately trying to comfort yourself at the, exactly. the suffering person's expense. Or justify yourself, which yep. is evil. It is evil. So... That's just a side note. Chapter 28 uh, is like a celebration of wisdom, um, and it seems like it's a bit of an interlude. It comes in the middle of Job's final defense, and he just kind of talks about wisdom and what wisdom is and how precious wisdom is. And then in chapter 32, Elihu, that we've referenced a few times, a fourth companion, kind of a surprise bonus friend who wasn't mentioned at the beginning of the story, uh, begins his long diatribe. 
this next week's reading ends at 34, so then we'll talk, we'll kind of conclude Elihu's speech next week. So Job chapters 12 through 34 is complex, rich poetry, which requires a different sort of reading than narrative or instruction. Read it slowly, try and picture what they're describing, and ponder the connections that they draw between things, these poetic connections. And Pastor Clayton said this last week, but I cut it for time, but it was a good comment, so I brought it back and give credit where credit is due, that Job is some of the finest Hebrew poetry in the Bible. You can't see that from the English translation, unfortunately. You know, it it sounds basically the same, but just believe it. Look it up if you want to. Uh, It's very, very fine poetry. Uh, The three friends, and especially Elihu, use less sophisticated language than Job. So Job speaks very well. He speaks very beautifully in his speeches, whereas his companions are almost spouting mindless self-help slogans back to him. Dance like nobody's watching, Job! (laughs) Eat, pray, love, Job. (laughs) That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's not much of an exaggeration. Every few verses, and speaking of Elihu... (laughs) that his speech kind of comes in at the end. Like I said, he's not mentioned at the beginning and then he just talks for five chapters and nobody responds to him. Uh, And Clayton will talk more about this when we conclude Elihu next week. But just here at the beginning, we should just know that my reading is that we are not meant to view Elihu very positively. I think that every few verses were given a reminder that he's a moron. He repeatedly vaunts his own wisdom and insight, which is almost universally a signal that a person doesn't have any. Uh, And he is shamelessly hypocritical, criticizing Job and the others for the very same chattering and empty philosophizing that he then proceeds to do for, again, a solid five chapters of the book. You'll notice uh, thematic repetitions in the friend's speeches and Job's responses, and occasionally whole verses or sections are just repeated again. Uh, on a structural level, this repetition reflects the original form of these scriptures as oral traditions, which involve a lot of repeating to aid memorization. That makes sense. On a literary level, I think these repetitions are opportunities to kind of think about what they're saying again. Uh, and there are usually some slight changes in language yeah. and emphasis that provide a deeper meaning, you know, both to the repetition and also to the original statement. But the first major theme, I think, is truth. Job Mm. knows that his friends are speaking folly. He references that multiple times. He pleads with them to shut up and wait for God to speak. The concepts of speech and silence weave throughout these chapters. The friends are wisely silent for seven days before they start in. Elihu holds his tongue throughout their discourse before he bursts into his diatribe. And Job is scandalized by God's silence, a common experience for those who suffer great loss. And the friends question Job's knowledge and repeatedly ask if he has access to some special revelation. I thought it was interesting. I didn't mark where it actually was, but I think it's Eliphaz that asks him, have you listened in on the heavenly council? Uh And it's like, well, Job didn't. But we did. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Back in chapter one. Uh, has God told you something we don't know? And of course Job has not, and they know it. And so Job is waiting. He wants the truth. He wants reality. A uh, sidekick theme with this idea of truth or revelation is that of the natural world. And so the book of Job, uh, and this will be especially true, I think, next week, but it reminds us that the universe is not all about us. There is much going on that has nothing to do with our human griefs and concerns. 
The plants and animals, the weather patterns, the heavens, all convey real but limited revelation of God. And the author of Job has paid careful, sustained attention yes. to the world around him. Yes. And really, it's an artistic attention that I think is shared by many of the psalmists and the Lord Jesus himself. What does the art tell us about the one who made it? Like, that's what I mean by an artistic attention. Consider the lilies, Jesus says. Gaze at the heavens, the psalmist says. Ask the animals, you know, Job says in chapter 12. I think it's a good reminder to us digitally distracted moderns that there's much comfort and perspective to be gained by being outside quietly for a while on a pleasant day. <clears throat> the second major theme, I think, is, and again, I struggled to, like, encapsulate what I'm trying to say, but anyway, the second major theme is beauty. Job recognizes that truth and goodness are beautiful. He says that he wore righteousness and justice as his clothing and his turban in, in chapter 29. Mm. His smile upon those he rescued and helped was like a shining light also in chapter 29. And all of these chapters are exquisitely aesthetic, meaning there's just so much they beg to be visualized. Like, please sit and imagine us as we're, as we're talking. But it's certainly not all pleasing. Along with stars and budding trees and happily dancing cows, there are archers and house fires and poor Job shriveled up like a desiccated potato in chapter 16, verse 8. And these confrontations with pain and anguish make the glimpses of beauty shine in comparison. And these ancient people knew the night sky. They knew the joys of feasting with family. They knew that the most precious jewels lay hidden in the deepest dark. And throughout these chapters, both the ones for next week and then we saw a few last week and there'll be more to come in Job, but throughout the whole book are scattered hints that a beautiful future is coming for the creation. And there are two of them in our passages next week that I, that I could kind of find. So the first is 14.12. So Job is talking and he says, So he, man, lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. People will not awake or be roused from their sleep of death. And, you know, I just read that and I was like, are you sure about that, Job? Are you sure that they'll never be aroused from their sleep of death? And then in chapter 19, and these are famous verses, uh, 25 and 26, Job speaking again says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. You know, and you sit back and you go, what, what, did, what did he think he was talking about? And it's not clear. And it's not fleshed out in the book of Job itself, but I think these verses remind Christian readers especially that resurrection is the end of our story. We're not doomed. Job is not doomed. The planet is not doomed. Nothing that is true, beautiful, and good will ultimately be lost. And the third and last major theme that I found in these chapters is wisdom. So Job and his companions question each other's wisdom constantly. Youthful, foolish Elihu challenges his elders to match his wisdom and Job, however, seems to know his limits. And it's interesting that Job, especially in, I think it's in maybe 27, is that he starts to make some of the same points that God is going to make in his speeches at the end. And so it's like yes. Job is, is already kind of coming to some conclusions here. Job knows his limits. He admits that God rules the cosmos through his wisdom. And we puny humans only see the outer fringe of his work. You know, and so it's interesting to think of the universe as like a, a robe or a carpet. And all we see are the little dangly fringe at the end, you know, and there's this vast tapestry that we know nothing of. It's, it's a beautiful, thought-provoking image. 
And then again, the hymn of wisdom in chapter 28 says that wisdom is a precious gem hidden deep within the fear of Yahweh. And these men talk long into the night, probably while Mrs. Job bustled around making sure everybody was fed. And if we can pretend that we've never read Job before, and perhaps you haven't, which is great, welcome, then I think that God's silence is deafening. <laughs> For chapters and chapters and chapters, these men are filling the air with their words and God says nothing. But it's interesting because the silence is not paired with a sense of absence or abandonment. On the contrary, Job is experiencing perhaps too much of God's presence. In chapter 30, verse 18, In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. And so God is wrestling with Job, and Job knows it. And Job's longing for an advocate, redeemer, evident throughout his speeches, takes on a new light. Not just someone to plead his case for him, but someone to come and break up the fight. And Job, the book, I think, is not really ultimately about why bad things happen to innocent no. people. And, and Pastor Clayton talked about this last week, too. Or even about God's strange justice. Because it talks about, you know, that God's in control and we're not, but then that's it. There's nothing else given about that. But I think it's really about human pain and suffering, how we deal with our own pain and suffering, and I think especially how we walk with each other through pain and suffering. How do we mimic God's response to it? God has not left Job alone, so the companions do get some credit for showing up. They didn't avoid him, but they utterly failed in the comfort, so to speak. You can't hear my air quotes, but they're there in the comfort they offered. And later in the book, God will make it clear that they have lied about him and said wrong things. And throughout these chapters, we've seen that silence is wisest. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if unlike Job's lousy companions, God has been silent, not because he doesn't care, but because he's been listening. There's a theme, I'm just wondering if, if you noticed this, it struck me as I read uh, this week that um, darkness is over and over mm. again. I counted it 25 times in the readings for this week right. um, that it's mentioned. And sometimes it's juxtaposed with light. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not. Also, the grave is mentioned mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. and again in this. Yeah. Sheol, like mm -hmm. we talked about last time. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious as to what you think Job is, is doing there. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, from what this man has experienced... You know, my, and again, I'm reading this into this, so this is not a, sure. you know, but I, I would imagine, you know, so they wait seven days and in the morning they start this discussion and it goes into the night. So like night is falling as they're talking. And I think that, and again, I, I, I'm acknowledging that the text doesn't say this, I'm this part of my imaginative reading, but that as the, especially as the friends keep talking, they get, <laughs> They are becoming adversaries. Yes. They're becoming a They're Satan. becoming Satans. Mm -hmm. Reminding that the word Satan right, means, means adversary. adversary. They're becoming Job's adversaries. And so as the darkness deepens, their their role is, is they're transforming from friends who came to comfort to devils who have come to accuse, which is, you know, terrible. But I mean, so I think, so I think that's part of it. And again, I think just the reflection of the darkness of their thinking. 
which is common thinking. I mean, you hear the same things today, obviously, in less Shakespearean mode, you know, but I mean, people say the same things. They still try and explain. They still try and blame people, you know. And they don't like it when their explanations are rebuffed. Right. As we talked about, you know, the underworld, the grave is dark, it's underground, there's no sun. And so I think Job knows, or Job perceives that he is sliding towards the grave. He wants to. He wants to die. He made that clear at the beginning. And in a sense, he has already died. Right. And so in some ways, we could even, understandably, he's embracing the darkness. Like, he's welcome. Not the darkness of his friends. He's He wants them to stop talking. But I think the darkness of, of just death and an and end it's almost something that he is he is welcoming, um, which is sad. Yes. But also, I mean, again, a very common experience to, to people who have experienced great trauma yeah. and loss. Well, and the sharpness with which it's contrasted, when Job would be kind to others and rescue them, mm. he his smile would he be... shown like the sun. He yeah. shown like the yeah. sun. He brought light, and his friends, on the other hand, along with Yahweh, have only brought darkness. Mm. Um, in other words, Job's saying, I've done what I was supposed to do. No one else is doing what they're supposed to do right now. What do you think uh, about the, um, just the length? Like, does it read, um, couldn't we have gotten all this with five chapters rather than 35 chapters of, of dialogue? I think that's just the wrong question. Couldn't they have done this faster? It's like, okay, take a breath and read your Bible. <laughs> If you want fast, go eat a fortune cookie. Uh-huh. But if you want fast, then be at peace with lousy. That's true. Right? Yeah. Because, again, self-help slogans fit on a poster. Mm-hmm. You can read them in an instant, but they don't transform you. I think also that the length may have a purpose. Um, we are worn out by the time we get to right, right. the end of it. And I think that... We're desperate for them to stop talking. Yes, we are. <laughs> Uh, and Elihu, on one hand, is an interruption, and for the first few verses, he feels fresh, mm-hmm. and then he's not. No, he no. is beating a dead horse yep. th- that's yep. already been beaten yep. again. And <laughs> my brain, as I read it, screams out for this to be over. And then it's going to happen next week, but I feel like that sense of exhaustion is intentional, and it, it prepares us in a way that we would not have been prepared otherwise to be gobsmacked by what happens at the end of the book mm-hmm. when the one that we all desperately want to hear from does finally right. speak. Finally comes, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a sense in which the, the friends represent the best of the ancient Near East's philosophy about why things happened. And so I think that, I, I love that, well mm-hmm. said. I think I agree with everything you said. Also that there's a sense in which that we're wanting to exhaust the thinking you know, yeah. like go get it all out, worldly thinking. Say all what you need to say, and then it's still not enough. It there's still doesn't no, help. There's no it hope still doesn't explain. in it. There's no comfort in it. All they have to offer a man whose children have been killed is, well, you must have done something to deserve it. Well, I mean, not this... even that, but it changes to, we know you did yes. something to deserve it, which is like, whoa. Because this couldn't have happened otherwise. Right. Before we condemn that impulse, we, we have to remind ourselves and be honest with ourselves that we find it in ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. When we encounter someone going through hardship, so often our response, at least internally, is, well, if you wouldn't have done this, right. or if you would have done this differently, right. 
And perhaps sometimes that's true, but we'd say that blind to all of the bad things and in unhealthy choices, right. poor choices we make, and often don't end up with suffering. Um, but we comfort ourselves in thinking, they did this to themselves, so this awful thing couldn't happen to me. Right, right. I'll avoid it because I'm following all the rules. Yeah. And please, as Pastor Ben said earlier, when you are in line at a funeral... <laughs> Do not burden the family with needing to make yourself feel better by saying something like, these are real things that I know people have heard um, because they've told me. Um, things like, um, God always has a plan. Things like, God wanted him he with, wanted this person to be with them more than he needed to be here. What do you make, Pastor Ben, of the times where he says things about God that we know aren't true? Can you give us an example? Yes. Um, I mean, he he blames God as um, giving rewards or protection to the wicked while punishing the innocent. Um, he destroys the blameless and upholds the wicked. These are themes that go throughout the, the book of Job, out of the mouth of Job. And so these are things that we know are untrue. Um, and when Job's friends are... Um, blamed for saying untrue things about Yahweh, but Job is not. That's just a little confusing. I don't know if I would necessarily say that it's untrue. Well, right, speak I mean, to that. Jesus says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and so the good things in wicked people's lives are gifts from the Heavenly mm -hmm. Father. So... I think we'd say it's untrue that he prefers and blesses the wicked over and above the righteous, intentionally. That doesn't seem to be the case, but again, you know, with Jesus' teaching, it's like, all right, so I mean, they do get good things, mm -hmm. and those come from God. He does, in fact, there is a pattern where righteous, innocent people suffer and die on behalf of everybody else. Yeah. So I also wouldn't say that that's not true either. Um, ultimately, Jesus takes all that onto himself. I think it's, I think it makes sense for Christians to read it that way. So I don't know. I guess I just, I would dispute that that's totally wrong okay honestly i mean that sure. you know that, well it's true also the prophets talk about the struggle with being called to be a prophet brings special hardship to it but i think that the idea that god somehow prefers wickedness over righteousness oh sure well is, uh, is of wrong. course not yes, yes. yeah and, it, and i guess i would i guess maybe my dispute is i'm not sure if i would want to look into more if that's really what job is necessarily saying because he's just reflecting reality right because it's happening it's his lived experience that mm -hmm. wicked people are not experiencing what he's experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, it's not that, you know, he's drawing an inference from what he's yes. experiencing, whereas his friends aren't. And so I think that when God speaks later, not to steal thunder from you next week, <laughs> but <laughs> that, you know, Yahweh says that Job spoke rightly mm -hmm. of him. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing Job said, because again, this is also poetry. Yes. And so we shouldn't push any particular line too far because yes. it's poetic. But I think that part of what God, if I may, in humility, part of what God means is that the way Job has spoken is right. Yes. That he has spoken honestly and he has spoken he is praying because really most of his speeches are actually prayers they're addressed to god you know or just telling his friends to shut up but that he's praying out of reality mm -hmm. he's praying this is what i'm experiencing prove me wrong mm -hmm. 
and he's inviting God into it. Correct. Over and over and so over So it's again. not, he's not making a statement as in, this is the way it is. He's saying, this is what I'm experiencing. Whereas the friends are the ones saying, no, no, shut up, Job. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. This is all your fault. <laughs> yes. Even though, well, and I, I was struck by something, and this might be totally off base, but I wonder if, so Job talks about all the people he helps and, you know, how he never let poor unfortunates go by without uh, assisting them. And then it's in chapter 29 where he starts talking about chapter 30. You know, all these people I helped, but now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me since their vigor had gone from them? And then he describes these these young young men who were outcasts and forced to live on the dregs of society. And now those young men mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. And I was just struck, and I'm not like making a big claim or anything, but I was just struck by this thought of like, what if Eliphaz and and uh, Zophar and Bildad are some of oh. these young men that Job rescued and helped and set up for success? <laughs> oh, no. And now they're coming back and they're being like, we know you did wrong. That doesn't change the reading of Job, but it definitely would would put a much sharper edge to their speeches and their interactions with him, if that's kind of the the context. That's a great point, yeah. Job's own views of God are being challenged. One of the Mm -hmm. things that I think we have to remember here is it's not as though Job began the book of Job with a correct understanding of Mm -hmm. suffering and is in the midst of that. He, He believed as his friends did, and in fact says at one point, if I was in your spot, I'd be right. saying some of these same things. Right. Um, he also believed that his righteousness would always lead to blessing and that that suffering was an element of wickedness, mm-hmm. which is why he's so surprised by the awful suffering that he's going through. Right. So his own deeply held beliefs about Yahweh are changing in the midst of the suffering. Correct. And that's a terrible um, crisis of faith to have to be going through at the same time as you're going through all this grieving and physical pain that he's going through. But prayerfully going yes. through crisis and he of is. faith. He, he continually desires to speak with Yahweh. In fact, he would like God to back off a bit. <laughs> <laughs> this was less of a lighthearted week, Pastor Ben. I mean, welcome to the Bible. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yes, the Bible, the Bible can be heavy, and this was a heavy week. We live in a heavy world. We do live in a heavy world. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry at Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Am I losing my mind? I I don't know. Pastor Ben is panicking, so I'm... Those are only two pieces of paper, right? And you can't be expected to keep track of two pieces of paper. <laughs> okay, well, I need four. Uh-huh. I don't know what to tell you, Ben. <laughs> I didn't take them. Uh...